And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the reading of the Lord of our God. Bow your heads in prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be able to uh, open up your word together. Uh, We acknowledge right now how frail we are as people. We acknowledge that we're not smart enough to comprehend what you say. Uh, We're not savvy enough to obey what you provide for us. And so we ask that you, um, you would guide us, you would empower us, you would open up the text and allow us to be um, just accurate interpreters uh, for your glory, not for our arrogance. We pray that we would allow the information uh, to, uh, to lead toward worship and not simply getting smarter. We love you, Jesus. Pray you would use me by your grace um, and we would be encouraged uh, that we serve a risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, guys. All right, guys, so we are, um, we are enjoying the Lord together today, guys. Uh, he is awesome. And we, uh, we're, in the, we're in the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 1. And uh, we're actually in the middle of a very intense uh, text. And we're doing something kind of different. I mean, we always expose the passages. Uh, we're very serious about, biblical, about accurate biblical interpretation. But because this text, um, a lot of times what happens is when you go to the Old Testament, you know, or even uh, aspects of the Synoptic Gospels, you have a lot of narratives. And then we can talk through the story. And within the story, um, it provides us um, different aspects of teachings, some doctrines uh, that are brought out from the narratives that Jesus provides for us. Uh, when you get into some of the epistles, which is what we're in right now, uh, you have it's a, it's a book on do, about, about doctrine, so, uh, which is our, the rules of teachings, which makes up Christianity when I use that word doctrine. OK. Uh, and. And so Paul is addressing a specific occasion. So it's an, what they call an occasional letter. And then in that occasion, he's trying to help us understand how to think like Jesus and what does it mean uh, to follow Christ. And then that's how we gain rules and teachings according to Jesus. OK. And so specifically in Colossians, uh, he's helping us understand uh, so much about uh, Christ. And we even say that this book here um, and specifically this passage is probably verses 15 through 20 in chapter one. It's probably one of the most amazing passages, one of the greatest passages on Christology. And because of that, we took last week and we did verses 15, 16, and we stopped because we only could do two verses because it was so packed. And because our heart here at MacAb is we really want us to understand and, and, and grasp what he's saying when he's talking about who is Christ. Uh, because we're saying that there's um, that the, the, the stakes are high um, when we're talking about our Christology, our understanding, our study of Christ. Uh, that we can't afford to get that one wrong, okay? And so we are trying to be very intentional and serious about who Christ is, making sure that hopefully we're encouraging ourselves in what we do know about Jesus, um, and that hopefully we're learning some new nuances um, as we think about how to articulate Christ uh, to a culture uh, and a world system uh, that wants to dilute or change uh, Christ in this world, but also in all of our lives, uh, trying to like, sort of just warp our view of uh, the historical Jesus. So our attempt... Uh, in these five verses is to clear up some things um, as Paul was trying to clear up uh, for the first century. All right, guys. So right now we're in verses 17 through 20. 
And I'm going to do one more attempt of basically we're going to walk through the passes sort of method, um, methodologically. And we're going to it's going to be kind of academic, but I want you to stick with me. Uh, so that we can understand the different nuances, because the funny thing about this passage uh, is a lot of times you will have statements that provide teachings and understanding of who Christ is or what who the church is. But man, there's a lot of assumptions in this passage where Paul is actually taking words and he has certain words that are packed with theological meaning. And so he's given us doctrine from specific words. So we're going to have a good old time today. OK, guys. All right. If you guys ready, just to let you know, if you're visitors, you can ask questions. Um, we just ask that they would encourage the saints. Uh, we pray that it would, it would um, edify the church, the body would be encouraged. Um, if you have something specifically, uh, please come see me and we can dialogue about it. Um, again, our heart is for us to grow smarter. So y'all ready to rock? All right. Okay, so here's our passage here, 17 through 20, just to catch you guys up real quick. Uh, right before last week, uh, we talked about a chaotic structure. Uh, we saw that in the beginning of the, of the passage, he starts off by talking about uh, Jesus being the image of the invisible God. Uh, we talked about what that really means, uh, talking about image being uh, the reality that he's actually not some copy or carbon copy, but the exact representation of who God is. That the Bible says in John that what Jesus does in John verse 18, it says that he exegetes the father to us, which is the word we get uh, when we talk about taking out of the text the original intent, understanding what the text means. But basically, we cannot know what God means or who God is apart from Jesus's revelation to us. Okay, and so that's what Jesus does. He gives us an understanding. He helps us know who the father is. Um, So we we walked through that passage. We talked about the reality of of him being uh, the beginning and before all things. And so the whole concept that we got there was the reality of his supremacy, um, him being all powerful. And then I talked about the chiastic structure. Okay, I talked about the rea- I talked about how he's saying uh, major points in, in verses 15 and 16. And then he's saying major points in verses 19, 18, 19 and 20. And that 17 boom is sort of like uh, uh, bringing it all together, as it were, like basically wanting you to understand, hey, that Christ is and he's before all things and in him all things hold together. So that's probably uh, what he's trying to make sure that we understand through verses 15 and 16 and 18, 19 and 20, is that Christ, in essence, is before all things and in him everything. Everything holds together. And why is this important? Again, you can't just take that in a vacuum. But the reason why that's important, because we have to understand what's going on in the first century. We have to understand that we're talking about individuals who first had a problem with someone being a creator. Okay, remember, we talked about that. They really saw it was something that that things created things. And so that's why you have pantheism. Right. Uh, You talk about uh, platonic thought. You talk about uh, the whole forms. Uh, Again, I talk about philosophy and demiurge. They always saw that there was this stuff and then stuff created stuff. Well, if there's nothing, if there's something, if there's always stuff creating stuff, then you might as well worship everything because everything was made from each other. And that's why you got people saying we should worship the earth. But what he's making a point against is saying, no, something creates stuff. A God created everything and he's uncreated. And because he's apart from creation, creation is here and he stands out here uncreated. He deserves to be worshipped because he's apart. He's apart from creation. Okay, just catching us up. That's a lot of a lot of stuff. But hopefully you had notes from last week. All right. So now we're entering into this passage here. And the question becomes, what's going on in verse 17? That word recapitulation. What does that mean, guys? All right. Now, what does it mean? Retelling. Right. The retelling. So. 
It's a nice, big old, fat seminary word that you throw up every once in a while just to, just to, edit, just to justify you got, that you spent all the money on seminary. And then, so recapitulation means the retelling, okay? So, so basically what verse 17 is, is them basically retelling what's going on in verse 15 and 16 and 18 through 20. He's just saying it all in a different way. Okay, he's he's trying to help the reader understand that Christ is basically in these two fashions, that the major thought pattern in verse 17 is that the preexistence of Christ and how does he really matter to the cosmos? Okay, so he's trying to make a statement in verses 15 and 16. He's trying to make the same statement in verses 18, 19 to 20. And then he makes that same statement again in verse 17. And the big thing he wants you and me to leave with and he wants these individuals in the first century to leave with as they're thinking about the goal is to get all this wisdom. You know, you have Gnosticism. That's the whole Greek Hellenistic thought. Remember, they were being so wise and the Greeks thought, man, oh, that's why you have all the sort of philosophic thought, you know, in those early centuries. Because the more the more you attain to that greater knowledge, the, the, the more enlightened you were. Right. And so it wasn't about a God. It was about you actually, in essence, being your own God, because you can continually just feed yourself with all this knowledge. Well, he's saying, no, none of that craziness. He's saying it's Christ. Christ is the one who's preexistence. Christ is the one you need to focus on. And it matters how he relates to the cosmos, because they, again, had a warped view of what materialism was. Us as people, we're going to talk about that in a moment. So he's trying to make you and me understand, OK, Christ is preexistent. And actually, that matters to how the world is made and how it interacts and how it goes and has its being. All right. So what he does, Paul provides two assumptions uh, that we're going to look at. What I'm giving us right now is I'm giving you the cheat sheet. I'm giving you the overview of what's happening in verses 17, 18 and 19 and 20. And then we're going to we're going to walk through uh, those verses. So when we understand the preexistence of Christ and how that really uh, how that matters to the cosmos, he gives us two assumptions here. He says, uh, first, the assumption one is that the universe has a temporal reality. OK, so that means if some if the universe was created, that means it wasn't always in existence. That means it has a temporal reality, which means it had a beginning. Correct. OK, so he said if the world and all the universe had a beginning, well, Christ is saying I must be superior, superior over it. Right. I have to be superior over it. Right. Because I don't have a beginning. So I created it. OK, it's real. It seems kind of simple, but that's what he's, he's bringing it to that, that that basic level. If the world has a created beginning and I'm uncreated, I must have created the thing that was created. OK, the other assumption. Sorry, guys. The other assumption. One second, guys. Is what has been brought into being continues because of Christ. So, again, maybe at best in the first century, people would go, all right, okay, well, okay, maybe there's a God, but he's kind of the deistic God. You guys know about the difference between deism, right, and what we talk about having a personal Lord, right? A de deistic people would say, okay, there's a God, give you that, all right? But he, he, he wound it up like a clock. He threw it off, you know, he threw the world and threw the universe and the cosmos out in somewhere and then just started just doing his own thing. And so he's out, you know, watching TV or something. So God is out here. He's not intimately involved in your life or my life. And the world just does its thing. But man, God started it. OK. And so but the point that we're trying to make and throughout all of scripture, and that's the whole point of, of God beginning. Hey, God created everything. And then we begin to see the whole concept of him having relationship 
with people is because he wants you and me to be convinced in our day and age, in our world, where the system, the world system tells you, be your own God, do your own thing, fight for your own stuff. He's saying, I want you to understand you don't have to fight for yourself because your Lord and creator is actually intimately involved in your life. He actually loves you. He's here. And so unlike what the world tells you, actually, I am doing things. I am working in your life. So now you can have peace because it's not about you. Remember we talked about that a while ago? We talked about the, the essence of hope. Like, you know you're messing up and you know you don't have hope, right, when you find yourself always in fear and anxiety and you find yourself always in greed and control, right? Because both are saying, I got to handle this. Both are saying, there can't be a good God that's going to run this. There can't be a great Lord that loves me more than I love myself who's going to protect me and care for me. So i got to do it. i got to make a lot of money at my job. i got to make sure that I'm doing everything for my family. i got to be Christ. I can't, I can't point my wife to Christ. i got to be a Jesus figure to her. See, we start thinking like that because we lose hope in an intimate Jesus. Well, Paul wants to make the statement that, no, Christ, um, he brought everything into being and he continues it. It's all in his hand. He keeps working it out. Took uh, my wife out for her birthday and we went to a nice restaurant and we were up high. And it was so cool just to show my kids, like they saw all the little cars and I was like, man, look at all those cars, guys. You ever think about that when you're seeing you like up high or something? And I'm like, guys, think about it. God knows everyone's thought in all those cars all the time right now. And you're like, huh. Can you imagine that? That right now, God knows what everyone is thinking, used to think, and we're going to think forever right now. And right now. And right now. He never gains information. He never loses information. It's all that access to him. Boom, right then. Always. Can you imagine? He always knows everything all the time. That's the Lord we serve. That's your Lord. How do you fear when you're co-heir to that God? Really? So, here's what he's doing here. So, when you have verses 15 and 16, you have it here. You have... Uh, creation, right? He's talking about God is the beginning of all things. He's RK, right? In the, in the beginning, he's created all things. And then what happens is you have 18, 19, and 20 that we're going to see real briefly. You have new creation, right? He's a, he's a beginning, right? He's the beginning of all creation, the, the image of the invisible God. And then we're going to see real soon, what is he? He's the firstborn from the dead, new creation, and the beautiful thing is arms, Jesus' hands are stretched out. And what he's trying to show us in verse 17 is what Jesus does, our great Lord, is that he stretches out and he's the bridge maker for creation and new creation. And at the cross and the resurrection builds the bridge that all of creation, both created, uncreated and newly created things are all under his hand. That's the point of verse 17 is that Jesus holds that picture doesn't do it purpose because he holds it all in his hand, both creation New creation, uncreated things, all of eternity in his hands. And then he still wants to make sure that we buy a house. It's weird. Blows my mind. All right. I'm getting used to this new thing, but I'm liking it. Okay. Living. What does it look like to live living out the implications of new creation? Um, let me. Let's talk about that. If the scriptures are saying, uh, let me just go to the text here. If that's the reality, if, if we're in new creation here, I'm going to think something got messed up here. Let me keep rolling. Colossians. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It says, um, 
and he is the head of the body. I'm in verse 17. And all things hold together. The question is, if that's the reality, if we're in the implications of new creation, then how does that affect us in our neighborhood, first of all? And secondly, the question is, how does that affect us in our city uh, and in our environment? And I bring this up for a couple of reasons. Because the implications of, the, of new creation means that what God has done is that he said, we're, we're here, we're in creation, he's created us. But then what he does is he newly creates us, which is what I'm going to continue on. It's in verse 18, so I'm going to actually continue on. It says, and he's the head of the body of uh, the church, uh, and he is the beginning of firstborn from the dead. Now, let me show you something real quick. I'm going to backtrack a little bit just to make sure. Thank you, guys. I could, we, had, we didn't have a slide for this, so I have some friends draw this for me real quick. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Can you help that one real quick? Thank you, bro. And then twist it. Twist it. Thank you. Some friends drew this for me, guys. Okay. Here's a tip here. So, all right. So let me just walk through this text here. Okay. It says in verse 18, so he's the head of the body. Okay. When we hear, how, much of, how many of us talk about the body of Christ? We talk about we're the body of Christ and all this stuff. How many of us actually think of it like a body, though? Um, and, and I want to propose to you that the, the reason why the scriptures gives us this, this, this concept of the body of Christ is because he wants us to think about it when we even think about uh, implications of, of new creation. He wants us to actually view ourselves as the body of Christ. And here's what it looks like practically. So if Christ is the head, okay, he's the head, and what does the head do? He wants, you, he wants us to think about it from this, the, a plain picture. It supplies the life. It exercises control and directions. We're on the same page? Okay, so that's what the body does. Um, and we're talking right now, we're in verse 18. We see that verse 17 shows us that God has brought the bridge from creation to new creation. Verse 18 is saying he is the head of the body. I want to process that a little bit. Uh, the body, the church. Now, the body, the church, we are, it sounds to me, like the limbs, right? So that means we're the hands, we're the feet, we're the legs, all this stuff. Now, the, the goal of the limbs are uh, to be under control of the head, right? We're also to be obeying, um, getting direction, and performing his work, okay? So, so the role of us as the body is that basically we are God's instruments to accomplish his purpose, so really, now here's, here's the issue. Really, that means that there's a revelatory reality here, is that God is trying to actually reveal to us in Christ the divine purpose of even himself in the church. Let me say it another way. A lot of times we listen to this and we think, okay, so I'm the body of Christ, and we think, what is our role? We think because now Christ is the head of the body, we almost, we almost limit his mediatorial role, right? He's the mediator of all creation. If he's a mediator of all creation, stick with me here. If he's a mediator of all creation, but then he says he's the head of the church, we almost go, okay, you're a mediator of all creation, but you're really focused on the local body. And so it's really about the people. But see, what you've done is you've, you've, you've twisted it. We've slimmed down Christ's call, where actually Christ's mediatorial role is already clear from verse 17, 15, 16, and all the scripture. He's the mediator of all creation. He has created all things. He keeps all things under his control, all of creation. So what we're not supposed to do, we're not supposed to limit God's mediatorial role. We're supposed to expand our role as a church. Do you see that? 
If that's who Christ is, if he is the mediator, the mediator of all creation, both created and uncreated things, if he controls the whole universe, it's all under his hand, and he's working it out all for his purposes, everything he's created, then we don't slim down his role. We say, well, if he's doing that as the head, and then we're his body to make sure that what he's trying to do in all creation gets accomplished, then what that does, that expands your role for more than evangelism. I'm proposing that the scriptures are teaching, if this is the case, if he's the head of the church, no longer is it just about humans. If his mediatorial role is about all creation, then your role as the people of God should be for all creation. That's a huge implication as new creation Christians. Does that make sense? People don't like to hear this, but that's why you should be concerned about the environment. Because Christ didn't come just for people. He came for all creation. And so if this is all his now, here's, here's the thing. It'll jack you up, right, if you think everything's going to burn. Like, if you got that theology, and, and I know that's prevalent, I would propose to you that's thoroughly unbiblical. And, and I propose what it provides you the dead end to think, I really don't have to care about the world because it's going to burn anyway. But I'm proposing that what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to teach us that actually... God, unlike the Gnostics who thought, man, matter was bad and, 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 and flesh was bad, and that's why you want to get out of this flesh and go float off somewhere like Casper, where that was the goal, God is saying, no, 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 you jacked up, but I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to recreate you. I'm going to make you new. And I'm not going to destroy my creation because that means Satan gets to say he won a little bit, that you took something and made it so bad that I couldn't do anything with it. God says, no, there's nothing that you can do, Satan, that I can't do better. So guess what? You try to take creation, I'll make it new. But I'll make the same creation new so that the same stuff that I started in the end will be here in the beginning and end. You see that? So the implications of new creation, guys, is that we need to really be thinking about not just, okay, well, is this just about evangelism? But God is saying, I want you to expand your role because our role should flow from the role of Christ, who is the mediator of all creation. Does that make sense? So, so basically, when I talk about implications of new creation, we have to think about that as we think about our city, as we think about our neighborhood, as we think about even our environment. We have to think about, are we showing implications of new creation in our life? Because the Bible is saying we're newly created beings. God is in control of all of us. He uses us to make sure the world understands what does it mean to be agents of new creation. Let's be clear here. We don't bring new creation in, okay? Let's be clear here. When I say new creation, I'm talking about one day, the Bible says that God is going to make all things new, okay? Actually, the Bible says he's made all things new right now, we just can't see it, right? And he says he's going to allow us to actually, when he begins to fully redeem all things, he is going to allow us to be able to see, and when he merges heaven and earth, which becomes the new creation, the heavens and earth will be merged together for God's glory, that will be, everything will be new, okay? And God is saying that that's going to happen, and that's a gift, we don't bring that in. We don't usher that in. That's a gift because God is good. What God is not asking you and me to do, and this is not here, this because Mac Adams, I don't want us to leave her thinking now is your role to bring in, to make everything, not, you know, mean people happy and, you know, bad houses look good. That's not the goal of Mac Adams. That's not our role here. What we're doing is we, in our good deeds and our deeds of love, as we care for each other, as we share our faith, as we're out in the community, as we are fixing up our homes, all those things are, are reminders of the world of the hope that we have in Jesus. Those are reminders that new creation has actually broken in because of the resurrection. Okay? And that we actually now have the, have the opportunity and power, unlike any other thing in creation. 
the dogs still are they're still like doing their thing and kind of jacked up. The funniest thing is God allows us humans, the only thing in creation to experience new creation now. Have you thought about that? We get to actually experience the resurrection now. And so we are born again, newly human now, to help people who want to know what that looks like and also to encourage creation, as it were, that God's promise will happen. Do you see that? So that's our role. The implication of new creation is that we remind the world Jesus has rose from the dead. He does reign. And then our good deeds are deeds of love to help the world see that you can hope. You can actually hope because he he, because there's a new humanity now. I'm going off, but I hope that makes sense. So. um, So what does it mean for Christ to be in the beginning, guys? So we have he is ahead of the body of the church. I'm proposing that Paul wants to blow that up or his assumption. I think we've tried to minimize it. But Paul wants to blow that up back in our minds as 21st century Christians that do not limit your role, but actually expand your role according to Christ. Christ creator of all, then that means you're the vice region of all. That means you're, you're bringing in new creation. You're not just bringing in evangelism. Um, so now we're in uh, the second part of verse 18. He is the beginning. Uh, RK, that's the word, that's the transliteration of the word beginning, which uh, can be translated, well, means ruler. Uh, um, and, that's, and we talked about this earlier, meaning like first rank priority. That's the issue. And, and I, I bring it up again because remember in, in, in verse 15, he was talking, you're, you're the beginning, basically, of all things that were created. But now it says, you're the beginning and you're the firstborn from the dead. Okay? Now, so you're the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Now, remember last week we talked about, and I want to bring this up for some people who are visitors, we talked about what does it mean to be firstborn? This whole beginning firstborn piece. Remember we talked about that issue, uh, I think, uh, Sis and Lindsay talked about, hey, the scriptures teach when you talk firstborn, you're not thinking who's the oldest, who was born first necessarily. You're thinking the issue of who gets the inheritance. Okay? Now, being firstborn, you are, it's, it, it is those things, but it's more. And so here is, I propose, the key indicator that what he's talking about when he says beginning, guys, he's saying that there is a realm of creation that God brings in through him creating all things. And then what he does, being the firstborn from the dead, beginning, he brings in, he inaugurates a new humanity. So he inaugurates a new humanity, and that humanity are those who are born from the dead. The resurrection is what he's talking about here, guys. So he's saying not only is he in control, ruler, priority of those who were created, but he is also ruler, priority, the beginning of those who are newly created. You see that? This would make this would be kind of intense for a person in the first century. I mean, you think of the um, the concept. I mean, what did, what did resurrection mean for a Greek and a Jew? You think about it. What is he ruling now? Like, well, how, how is this different? A Jew. OK, these guys. So if we start with the Greeks. The Greeks thought, man, OK, resurrection. We don't want that. We don't like the body. We're sinful. You know, and that, I mean, day and age, look at our day and age now. We're, we're killing each other. Uh, we're like sexual predators. We're we're all over the place. We're all messed up. And so people are thinking, man, this flesh is bad. All the things I do. All the things I, I say, and we say, I want to get out of this flesh. I want to go off somewhere. So the Greeks never thought that you would actually want to keep this body. You go, you go and you read any of the antiquities of any Greek philosophers, and all those guys all thought, man, we need to get away from the flesh. Okay? 
Now, but then you got the Jews who thought resurrection. Cool. The resurrection is going to happen. We're going to get beat up. We're going to get trounced on. And then one day resurrection is going to happen uh, and specifically for the Jews. Well, Jesus blows both out of the water. Okay, the Greeks are totally wrong because actually God isn't trying to get rid of our body. He's trying to make our body new. Okay, and then also for those who are Jewish, he's saying, actually, the very thing you've been wanting twofold, you've been wanting the resurrection of Israel. Well, actually, Israel's God is the God of the world. So he's going to resurrect all people. And guess what is going to happen? It's not just happening in the end of time, but it's happening right now in the middle of time, starting with me, Jesus. So he just blows them both out of the water. He says resurrection is today. You don't have to wait any longer. And so in both cases, both guys are going, man, well, philosophically, it didn't make sense. Theologically, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense for the Jew theologically. It didn't make sense for the Greek philosophically. But the reality is God blows everyone out of the water and he says resurrection starts with me. I'm the beginning. I'm the ruler. I'm the first one from the dead. I begin this new humanity. And now new humanity can now flow from me. So Greeks viewed the body as decrepit and Jews viewed the resurrection at the end of time. But what Jesus does, he begins a new people who conquers the dead. So the reality is for any of you right now, if you are a Christian, uh, you will not. Uh, now here's the thing. It's not that you will pass. It's not that you won't die, but it's that death won't conquer you. OK, you'll pass by death. OK, that's that's the beauty of resurrection is that we, we will die. And, and then we will actually be with the Lord. And then, I mean, death won't hold us. That's the beauty of, of uh, what the Lord does, or one of the things. Jesus is the firstborn of many people who will be resurrected. And I know when we hear this, I mean, as a Christian, I kind of get so used to these terminologies, resurrection. Uh, if you're new here, I, I don't want to, I mean, it might sound kooky, but that's the reality. Because you got to ask yourself, I just want to be, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just saying, oh, resurrection, like people rise from the dead every day or something. I know, you know, if you're new, you're kind of like, people don't rise from the dead, bro. Um, well, that's, and I, and I, and I want to give you that. I want to be fair. So let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you think about it. And this is briefly, I just want to talk brief history. I, I thought about that. I said, man, okay. How do you explain it? So you, you, you got um, all these guys, you got like 500 people, okay? Resurrection was not normal, okay? Um, and so people didn't rise from the dead. All of a sudden, how do you get, you know, and, and think about the doctrine. Think of doctrine of resurrection. Think, think, think of being, put your Jewish glasses on for a moment. Think of how, how, how entrenched they were in understanding things like circumcision and understanding things like the law. I mean, it took them, it took them thousands of years. They would entrench this stuff in them, okay? And that's how they would go about forming, they, uh, having their spiritual formation, understanding their thinking about God, their theology. Well, how in the world do you get people who are trained like that? And you get 500 of them. And in one day, they begin to believe the resurrection. How do you get in one day, you get 500 people who say, I've been thinking all this all my life, but today I'll die because I believe in a resurrection. How, how does that happen? Well, I propose to you because Jesus rose and they saw him and they beheld his glory and thought, oh my goodness, everything I've thought, I got to put that through a new grid now and I got to change my life. So it is uncommon. It is supernatural. But that doesn't mean Jesus didn't do it. I suppose he totally did. And then he promises you and me, we get to experience that too one day. Christ is the resurrection family. Um, 
Let's continue on. We're in verse 18 here. So and be looking at your Bibles if you can. I just want to make sure you're sticking with the, with the under the flow of the text because you can get lost because it's kind of meaty here. Where does Jesus get these titles, right? He says, no, and he's the head of the body. We talked to that, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from, thank you, buddy. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything um, he might be preeminent, that the goal, the goal of, of, of these titles, uh, that him being the firstborn from the dead, him being uh, the head of the body of the church, is that if he is, in, if he is over both humanity and all creation, the whole, part, the whole heart of it is he should get these titles. Why? Because in him, he is over all things. He is totally preeminent. Totally over. Jesus is Lord of everything. From creation to new creation is what he's trying to just dig into our minds. Specifically, he's trying to dig that into the minds of a first century Jewish person and the Greeks who were trying to contemplate, um, is Jesus worthy of their life? And so he says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent and then for him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why does he get uh, these, um, these titles? I love this. Two main reasons the text says that Christ can claim preeminence or supremacy. There's two main reasons um, right here. First, I would even propose in verse uh, 19. Uh, for in him, uh, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We, we, we dove into that briefly last week, uh, that Jesus can claim these roles, guys, because scriptures are totally clear. There's not much I need to do here. Is that because God saw it pleasing to allow all of who God is to dwell in Christ. Is that God is Christ. Christ is God. Is that he, there's nothing missing at all uh, from the essence of God when you look at Jesus. And he says, because of that reason, God deserves, Jesus deserves all supremacy. He deserves preeminence. He deserves worship. Uh, if he is the uncreated one, then he can claim preeminence. He can claim pre- uh, supremacy. And as you look at verse 20, I propose this is the second reason. Uh, because he can claim those things because everything, the scriptures say in verse 20, and through him to be reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, that everything is reconciled to God through Christ. That he is the hope of glory. He, that basically everything is, uh, is under him because he's the only one that's not created. And that God is saying, hey, he's going to be the one, the reconciling agent uh, for all of creation. Now let's process something real quick, guys, and then we're going to hopefully be encouraged, and then we're going to go home and worship Christ. There is, um, when I think of doctrine, I wanted to put this up because I want us to maybe even understand how to, how to articulate this when we talk to people um, in our communities and our and neighbor. Um, talk about reconciled to God. There's probably like five main words that describe our state. When we think of God and his goodness, and I want us to get this, I think we, we see this, but I, I wanted to put them down for us. Um, there's first uh, justification, okay? And when we talk about justification, I mean, you as a Christian, you hear these words a lot. Uh, it's a person who stands guilty and they declare righteous by God. You have a person who, who stands for God and deserve a total damnation. They deserve to be totally destroyed. And then what God does is God says, actually, you deserve to be destroyed. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make you righteous, okay? 
there's also redemption. There's a word of redemption, right? A person stands before God as a slave, okay? We stand, we stand before the Lord, and he's like, you're, you're my bond servant. You're an absolute slave, and, and you're granted freedom. Um, uh, basically, uh, what he does is he actually uh, purchases you, uh, bless you, he purchases you uh, from Satan. You're a slave, and he says, I'm going to actually give you freedom, okay? So, so what's happened to you if you're a Christian is that you've been declared righteous by God because he's just good. You've been declared free uh, from, the, from the, the tentacles of, of sin, uh, and from Satan, and he says, I free you. Uh, there's a reality of forgiveness. What the Lord has done is a person stands as a debtor, right? Is that God is saying, you have done these things and you owe me uh, because I'm perfect. I can't believe, what, what's your deal? And it says, but what he does, he doesn't ask you to pay for it. He says, but it's paid and forgotten by God. What he does is he says, yeah, you owe me. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to get my son. He's going to be murdered uh, to pay your debt. Okay? So what God does, he justifies us. What he does, he redeems us. He forgives us. Uh, probably the fourth one I would say is adoption. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. A person stands as an orphan, as a stranger, as a bastard son or daughter. And what he does is says to, to God, and he, and he says, you know what, look, you, you, you're not my kid, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to choose you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you my son or daughter. So what he does, he justifies you and me, right? He says, hey, you, you, you should be guilty. I'm going to make you righteous. He says, you, you stand before God as a, in, your, in redemption. You stand as a slave. I'm going to free you. He says, forgiveness. You stand as a debtor. I'm going to pay your, I'm going to pay your, pay your price. And in adoption, he says, you stand as an orphan. You're not mine, but I make you mine because I'm good. And then finally, the term we see here in verse 20 is reconciliation. Where a person stands as an enemy. Stands as an enemy of God. And then what he does he says, I'm going to make you my friend. That's what God does. He says, you stand totally abhorrent to the Lord, totally disconcerting. You don't care. He says, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you my friend. That's what the Lord does. What he does, you talk about reconciliation, you're making peace between two enemies. And when you think about that, think about verse 20. Go back to verse 20. Look at your Bibles. Uh, see what's going on now in verse 20? Look what he says. That's why he says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, does that word peace mean more now? You see how it pops out? Why does he use reconciliation and peace in the same sentence? It's extremely intentional, guys. Because he wants you to understand something, that we are enemies of God if we don't understand the cross, if we don't understand and believe Jesus. But he says, I make you, I give you an opportunity to be my friend. Now, let me process that a little bit. You might go, well, a question, when we think of reconciliation, there's some assumptions here. Uh, first assumption that, that Paul is making, he's, he's assuming that you're at odds with the Lord, right? And so, and so just to be clear, the Bible says that we're all born jacked up. We're all born, and there's enmity, uh, that we're enemies of God. The nicest baby in this room, uh, got, he's growing up or she's growing up as an enemy of Jesus uh, because God is perfect and holy. And he says, whether you like that or not, whether your baby's really cute or not is irrelevant. Uh, it says that he needs or she needs uh, to be experienced. And what does it mean to have peace with her maker? Because right now he or she doesn't. Do we get that? Do we believe that? Do we understand? See, see what this does, this, this stuff, it hits to the heart of how you really view your sin. It hits to the heart of, do you really think you're that evil? Do you really think you're that foul? Jesus does. You're at odds with the Lord. Every one of us before Jesus. And what Christ says, I've made, I've made, I have made, and I will make things right. 
That's the whole concept of peace. That's what, we, we, we quote these verses, but I want us to understand them, guys. As you, as you read the Bible, he, he says, I made all things new. When he, when he, when he, when he shouts these beautiful um, aspects of, from the cross, his point is that because of me being murdered, because of me shedding my blood, what I've done is I've given you access now to not have to experience that journey as a bastard son or daughter, as a person who still owes me because of their sin, as a person who's still unrighteous and evil. He says, you don't have to own all those things because I've given you an opportunity to experience me, to have me pay for all those things and provide a way for you. Very interesting, isn't it, guys? Theology, theology, theology. You see what Jesus does here through Paul? He helps us understand who Jesus is, what he's about, what he's done with creation, what he's done with new creation, what he's done with all things. And then he says, and guess what he does? He gives us an opportunity to re-experience being newly human through him. Very fitting. Amazing what he does. And he brings it all together in verse 20 here. By basically saying, let me tell you the gospel. You see that? Look what he does. Jesus restores, he restores shalom. Right? It's the highest priority of Jesus. He wants to restore peace. What does that mean? See, that's, that's, that's sort of the, the sumum bonum. That's sort of the, 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 the will call of, of all the stuff we're talking about. Is that what Jesus is saying is that things are messed up because you have creation. And then what you have, we've been talking about in our men's night, which was an unbelievable time. You have decreation because of our stupidity, because we have the audacity to think we're our own guys, to think we're not as sinful as we think. But no, he says you're messed up. So we have decreation and all of humanity is going down. And then what he does is he provides an opportunity of recreation. And what he basically is doing there is he's saying, I got to make all things new again. I got to make all things the way they're supposed to be. Peace. Where everything is right with God. See, pre- see here's, here's another thing about the gospel that makes me kind of mad because I'm kind of selfish. It's not about me. It's about things being right with God. you like, well, he, he likes us and stuff, but it's really about God. And we go, well, man, why don't I get more airtime? You know, I'm a nice brother. It's the name about you. It's about peace. People, me being able to look at all things and go, wow, just the way I wanted it. Look at it. That's his goal. And that's why he has to destroy evil. And that's how he has to destroy people who don't submit to his reign. That's what reconciliation assumes, guys. So the question is, why do we have to, why do we, why do we have to spill blood? Right? Why do we have to, why, 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 why do we have to go to this level? See, that's the beauty of the gospel. And see what he's doing? So he's taking us through understanding, building our view, expanding our view of who Christ is. And he brings us all the way down to talking about that God, that powerful God, this beautiful Jesus. Well, let's talk about ourselves. We're totally decrepit in God's sight. It says that we're evil, right? It says that, that we right now should be destroyed. But for some reason, we needed a savior. Here's a, here's, a, here's a kicker is that he says, you know, like you just didn't sin against somebody. You sinned against, we sinned against a Lord, the Lord of all creation. So how do you get, how do we pay for that kind of sin? Right. I love what he does. He says, well, okay. All right. You've experienced, say you experienced this reality of, of reconciliation. Okay. Now you experience reconciliation. You're no longer an enemy anymore. But guess what? Because if reconciliation and no resurrection, you're not guilty anymore, but you still haven't experienced new humanity. You get that? See, you have to have the cross and you have to have the reality of Jesus rising from the dead. 
He paid for sin, but the reason why he rose was to be the firstborn from the dead. And so he's helping us understand that the cross and resurrection come together. And so he's saying, guess what? In order to have your blood, if we spilt our blood, that'll last for a little bit. He's saying, no, we needed someone who'd be able to spill their blood, blood that would last forever. So that means we needed a forever one to spill their blood. Okay, and that's why God, as a God and man, comes, sheds his blood for you and me. And then he says, I'm not just shedding my blood because that, again, that frees you. That makes us friends. But guess what? I want you to actually experience what you were created to be. That's, that's the reality of the resurrection. And so what God does in the gospel is he gives us cross and resurrection. So not only do we experience being God's friend, but now we experience what does it mean to now be fully human? That's the beauty of the gospel. So our failure to honor God is infinitely despicable. How to respond to this? How to respond to that reality, guys? I mean, that's great news. You think about that. And that's the thing. I mean, and I, I'm not trying to, trying to manipulate emotions, but when you think of that, you think of what he does in the text here, how he says, I want to exalt your view of God. I want you to see Jesus as the exalted one, image of the invisible God. He's the very God of God. He's been before all creation. He's created everything. He holds both creation and new creation under his wing. He's intimately involved in your life. He can do anything, all things. He's done everything for us, and he keeps everything moving. The reason why we have heartbeats and walk around and eat food is because God hasn't totally allowed everything just to go crazy and be destroyed because he is in control of everything, intimately involved in our lives. And then he says... By God's grace, he's doing all those things, but now we're all jacked up. We need our Savior. And he says, I've done all that, and then that God, that King, that Lord, right, what he does, he dies for you and me. And I'm just saying, guys, what's our response to that? That's the question. That's the question. Not, not out of guilt, but out of joy. Well, I think it's just simply a call to the church, right? That we need to embrace courageously, oh, two of ours, sorry, embrace courageously gospel tension. Now, let me, this process is, because this is a hard thing in our local body, guys, gospel tension. So, how do you embrace gospel tension? Okay, so I'm freely bought by Jesus. I'm his now. I haven't done anything to deserve it. This is a hard one in our body, because we are a mission-focused body. We, I feel like, because the Bible tells you to be, Okay. So we are serious about um, being holy. We're serious about walking with Jesus. And we're serious about being motivated by grace. Okay? But there's a tension. Okay? We talked about it actually last night with the men. There's a tension. There's a tension where God has given you everything. And then what he says in the scriptures, he looks at Peter. Peter denies him three times. Peter comes up to him thinking he needs, he owes Jesus something. Jesus is like, we straight. Now, you know, you cool, you you my boy now, we still boys. Hey, here's what you do, make disciples. So he experiences the grace of the Lord. He's done absolutely nothing to experience being God's friend. But then at the very same time, he's asked to give his whole life to Jesus. Everything. Go make disciples and go and get murdered one day for me. That's what he's told to do. And, Jesus, and Peter says, well, I messed up once. I better not mess up again. And he does it, right? He goes, he preaches the gospel faithfully and gets murdered. Okay. All right. Now, that's our tension. Okay, we leave here at this body all the time. And 
We can get it right sometimes, we can get it wrong. We need to give each other grace. But the reality is, we understand. The Word of God is being very clear to us that we are to give everything to Christ. Right. That if we make decisions or do something and we say, well, I'm free in the Lord and we're not going to consult God. God is saying, you don't get this. How can you get this and then say, well, the Lord wants me just to be free to make any decision I want. How do you get this and, and then try to figure out a way to not be about evangelism? How do you get this and, and to try to to make your own missionary framework versus allowing God to deal with your heart and work through people and figure out what does it look like for me to experience joy and be radical about Jesus? Right? Well, so we have this missional call that's always on us, right? But then we have the freedom that God has given us and made us as people. You can't earn that. And we have to figure out in our body how to keep ourselves in community, experience God's grace, and radically go forward in the mission. And to learn how to experience joy in the process. And guys, I, I pray. I pray for this. Because, guys, this is hard. It's hard for our body. Because you guys are awesome. You guys are trying to walk with the Lord. You're seeking Jesus. And this is a little pastoral word for you. I really feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to understand we need to be prayerful. Because Satan wants to dethrone and derail us uh, from this call of being prophets to this community, of being good neighbors, of fighting to fight well here. And the way he wants to do it is he wants to begin to take little things and say, well, I should be free. And we begin to take the, the reality of it's hard and we begin to place that on other people. That makes sense? And I want to propose to you that we got to make sure we stay connected in the community. We have to make sure that as we look at the mandate that God has given us mad grace but he's given us a mandate, okay, that we wrestle with those things in an appropriate manner. Because it's clear. Is that fair? Is that fair, guys? We're going to struggle with this. The question is, how do you find a rhythm? How do you find a rhythm that's healthy, but that honors the Lord? And I think to you to try to find it yourself, I think, is um, it's sad because that's why God's given us community. So I think we've got to embrace the gospel tension. The gospel tension is that God is asking for our lives. But he gives us life freely. And living out implications of new creation, guys. Um, you know, I just, I mean, the question is, why do unbelievers, I mean, I think for unbelievers to be doing more in, in our community as far as like environmental stuff and care for and being a steward of God's creation doesn't make any sense. Because we understand why we need to do it. We understand because this is God's world. And so we take care of his stuff. And, and to be honest, if I can, if I can again, be candid, I, I'm, I'm the first one who's guilty of this because I think my, my wife models this very well. I'm like, the main reason I don't want to do it because I'm lazy and it takes a lot of time. Um, that's it. Right? A little more expensive. But man, if this is, if this is God's world... And we're under his mandate. And if, if that picture is true, where God is saying, I'm cre I've done all this. This is all mine. And now you're my agents for all this. Then all this equals more than humans. Now, by the way, I'm not asking you to get all crazy on me. You know, if there was you driving down the street and I said it before, you know, and there's Bambi on the road laying there and John on the road. You don't pick up Bambi. You know what I'm saying? Like. 
You pick up John. Humans, humans matter more. Okay, let's be clear. Don't pick up Bambi and leave John dead, okay? What I'm saying is that we need to make sure we're caring for all of creation, okay? So you shouldn't be having like no, like just, you know, like, okay, I gotta make a decision here. You know, do I care for creation more than humans? No. All right, guys. Um, but to the call of the unbeliever, we, we implore you as a, as a local body, uh, man, join Christ in the resurrection. Um, we just pray that you would, um, you would experience resurrection life, um, that you would not uh, go another day being dead in your sin and an enemy of God, um, but that you would experience life in Christ. Um, that's all we got for, uh, for these verses. What we're going to do, we're going to sing out to the Lord. Um, I want you to think about that. We're going to take tithe and offering right now, guys. Um, we're asking you to really consider that. Talk about those things in your mat group. Uh, think about those implications of new creation. Think about what does it mean when you look at Christ and how, it, how he affects your life, if those things are true that we've seen in Scripture. And right now, we're going to go ahead and take tithe and offering. I want to ask you guys, if you're new, please keep your wallets to your side, your purses.